open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. We've been going through uh, the book of Exodus and studying chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And when I first begin to study the book of Exodus, I, as you guys know, when I when I do this, I, I sit down and try to read through the whole book, no matter how long it is, all in one setting. It helps to get context and become familiar with things. And when you do that, you come to these passages of Scripture like Exodus chapter 15, and you file it in the back of your mind, and you go, I'd like to not teach that chapter. I'd like to kind of just skip over and, and go through. And and, um, and and part of the reason why is because it's a song. You know, here we have a song, and it's like, um, and it's a song that recounts everything that we've just studied through. And, and so I, I kind of thought it in the back of my mind and finished study last week and, and got to chapter 15 this week and started reading and studying through it on Monday and through the week, and I just kept going, oh, Lord, help. And um, uh, God did. He, God's awesome because there's, there's more I study and dug into it. There's some really, really cool things in here for us. And um, I was originally wanting to do more of a topical style study, just to let you know on, on what praise and worship is. This is a song of praise. To worship the Lord. And we often associate our own worship with the Lord uh, through song. That's what we do together on Sunday mornings. But the word worship in the, in coming from the original Hebrew word literally means to bow down. And it's, it's, not, it's not even this like curtsy or down on a knee. The, the word there, it, it, the, the implied position in bowing down is prostrate, on the ground, hands spread out, on your face before the Lord, and worshiping Him as God and as King. And, and this is a song of praise. This is a song of worship. And, and, and really what this is is an opportunity to remind us, to remind us that we've been called into this relationship with God and, and that, that the response to that is praise. The worship, a response of knowing who our God is and what He's done for us is praise and worship. It's honoring Him. It's glorifying Him. Not only in all we do, but as we just completely lay ourselves down before Him and go, Lord, You're, you're it. You're, you're everything. It's like what we've been kind of looking through in the last few weeks in the book of Colossians on Wednesday night in a couple of studies that we've been doing. So I thought about doing just kind of a reading through this and, 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 and more paraphrasing back to you what was going on in this chapter and then and looking really at what it means to worship the Lord and what praise and worship looks like for us today and the different avenues of that and, 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 um, what I begin to see is, as we just studied through this verse by verse, is that there's, there's great application for us in this chapter in relationship to the song of salvation that we sing. In a lot of your chapters in your books, if you have a study Bible, some of it says the song of Moses, which is really an inaccurate depiction of, of, uh, of what's going on here. It's really a song of salvation. It was a song of salvation that was sung both by Moses and the children of Israel. So, as we prepare to study this next chapter, which records a song of praise that was sung by Moses and sung by the children of Israel, we need to know that it was in response. And worship and praise, like I already mentioned, is responsive. It's, it's because of who God is, primarily. And the awesome thing about that is, is God's never changing. And so when is God not worthy of our worship? You see, our circumstances change, our situations may change, we may change, but God remains the same, and God was as worthy of our worship yesterday when everything was perhaps perfect as He is today when perhaps things aren't the way that we necessarily want them to be. So our praise and our worship ultimately needs to be centered in the fact of 
It's because of who God is. We worship Him and we praise Him because of who He is. He's deserving of it. He's worthy of it. And, and, and the children of Israel, in this sense, there's a passage of Scripture in the book of, of Job that says, a song, let me get this right, a song of praise shall come forth in the night. And I love that because if you know the story about Job, his life was devastated. God stood back and, and said to Satan, I hope God never does this for you. Behold, my servant Job, my servant child. And he says that to Satan. God does to Satan. And it kind of incites Satan, if you will, to come after Job. Oh, yeah, you think Job is so awesome. He only serves you and loves you because you've given him all these wonderful things. And God's all, yeah, well, we'll test this. Because God knew. God, it wasn't really a test. It was, it was a demonstration. Because God already knew what kind of man Job was. And God will never, um, well, I don't want to, I'm getting way off track. But the point is, is you know the life of Job, and, and, and Job, he, he, um, he makes that statement, a song of praise shall come forth in the night. And the idea is, is when it's, are we still praising the Lord when it's the darkest? And, and Job got to this place, even though his wife said, curse God and die, Job says, no, I won't. Though he slay me, he says, I will still serve the Lord, I still worship the Lord. And, and, and that's because God's the same. And the children of Israel, they hadn't learned that yet. That song of praise in the, in the night comes with maturity. It comes with spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and, and understanding that even in this darkest moment, God's still working good. Even in this darkest moment, God is still good. Even in this darkest moment, God is for me. Even in this darkest moment, God said he will work it together for my good. He's with me. He's fighting for me. He's protecting me. He's growing me, refining me. All these things we can look at as a result of what we know to be true, even though with what we see to our eyes may seem and feel different in the moment. And it, and it took a while for the children of Israel to get this, but this song of praise, this song of worship comes forth after this mighty victory. It's a response to having been miraculously taken through the Red Sea and delivered from Pharaoh's army. That thing that we read about last week. That thing. That, 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 just that thing. But I think it's important for us to look back to Exodus chapter 2 that reminds us really, that when this story of God's deliverance began, the children of Israel were not singing any songs of praises, were they? In fact, in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned, it says, because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. There are no, no songs of praise when this all began. It was, it was groans and cries. And I point this out in order to highlight, really, as we're moving forward, studying through the text. It's important, I point this out in order to highlight how Israel's encounter with God did more than just set them free from bondage. Israel's encounter with God did more than just set them free from bondage. More than just move them into the place of freedom. And, and as we see here in chapter 15, Exodus chapter 15, that their encounter with God literally took them, this is so cool, that their encounter from God literally took them from a place of groaning and a place of crying out to God because of their bondage to the place of singing, from the place of rejoicing. Why? Because of their redemption. 
Is that not true for us? It should be. Because God's taken us from the place of groaning, from the place of crying out, and He has saved us and He's redeeming us. And the Bible says He put a song of praise in our hearts. And in light of this, it's also important to point out that what we read in chapter 15 is a first. And anytime there's a first in the Scripture, it's worth pointing out. As a matter of fact, as we were studying through the book of Genesis previous to this, we talked about how it's a book of first, a book of beginnings. And so as we look at this as, a, as, as, as this chapter as a first, what I mean by that is, is, is this song of praise is the very first song that's recorded in the Bible. You can go back and look and check me out. There's others that come after it, but this is the very first one. And it's significant that it is the first song. It's significant that the first song recorded in Scripture is a song about redemption from bondage. Isn't that cool? Because isn't that what the Bible is about? It records from the very beginning the fall of man and God's plan to redeem us from the bondage that came as a result. And even though there are many other songs like this recorded in Scripture, like the one written by King David, I love this one in Psalm 40, verses 1-3, to he said, I waited patiently on the Lord, and He inclined to me, and He heard my cry, and He also brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock, and He established my steps, and He's put a new song in my mouth. And then he says, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. See, that's the other thing about the work that God does in our lives and the song of redemption that he gives us and the praise that comes forth is that God, David points out, he says, others see that. Others hear these things and they look into them and they too, as a result, will trust in the Lord. In other words, they go, uh, God could say, Curtis, that crazy youth guy who was going to bean a few kids in dodgeball. Did you see that picture of him? He's all wound up. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> if God could save Curtis, certainly God could save me. If he has a song of redemption, then what can God do for me? They, they begin to hear about the works of the Lord, the, who God is, through our praise, and people trust in the Lord also, is what David says. And the most important song about the redemption from bondage, really, guys, isn't any that's found in Scripture. I don't mean that in a blasphemous way, but I'm here to tell you the most important song of redemption, about redemption from bondage, isn't the one found in Scripture. It's a song of praise that each one of us can sing as a result of our own salvation. Your song of redemption. That's the most important. And it's like a song that's re- it's just like the song that's recorded here in chapter 15, because like the one here in chapter 15, the song that God has given us, it tells of this. If you're keeping notes, this is going to be the structure for the rest of the study. It tells of what God has delivered us from. First of all, what has God delivered you from? What did God deliver the children of Israel from? In addition to that, it tells of what God did to deliver us. It tells of what God delivered us from. It tells us what God did to deliver us. And it also tells of what we have come to know about our Savior. That song of praise tells people and reminds us of what we've come to know about our Savior as a result of being delivered. But, but, but in the end, ultimately, the song 
all of our songs, this song and our song of praise and redemption, that salvation song, it tells of the future promises that we're now looking forward to. That's part of the story. It's part of the message. The song of redemption isn't just for what's here and now and what was, but it's for what is. The future. And it's a glorious future. It's a blessed hope that we have in Him. Now, before we read through this next chapter, I want you guys with me to first look at verse 2. This is so cool. It's so key. But in verse 2, if you look, and then I'm going to read through it, um, I want to point out that, that verse 2, which in the, the structure of the song, and we, if you're a musician or know anything about music, which I'm neither, I'm not a musician, and I know very little about these kinds of things. But what I do know is is that there is a structure to songs. There's a structure to music. And um, great musicians are really great, also great mathematicians. And, and there's mathematical equations and formulas tied in. There's an order. There's a structure. And, and um, in regards to this song, verse 2, which in, in this song structure is what would be referred to as the refrain or the chorus of the song, meaning it's the part that would be resung in order to connect the verses or the stanzas of the song together. And I point this out for two reasons. The first is because when we get to, to verses 20 and 21, you can look over there if you want, but when you get there, it appears that while Moses and the children of Israel, speaking the other guys in the congregation, while they sang the, the four different verses of this song, which we'll read about, it appears that Miriam and the, and the women, other women who had gone out, that they, 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 they responded by singing this chorus. It was, a, it was a sung and then a responsive kind of thing. It says they did this as they danced and as they played their timbrel. Now, we can read that and go, oh, okay, but this really happened. And when you think about this, you know, the Red Sea was parted. They walked across on dry land. Pharaoh's armies pursued. They were drowned into the sea. They're there on the shores the next morning. The, the shores are literally lined with the bodies of Pharaoh's armies. And, and this song of praise is going in. And outside of the camp, the women are gathered. And inside the camp, the men are in singing. And, and as, this, as this goes on, it had to have been... An awesome thing, because I imagine it in my mind with the singing of the men and the response of the women. I imagine that these sounds of praise remind you, I want to remind you, by the voices of two million people, it had to have been a glorious thing. Now, I've been to, like, uh, pastor's conferences where there's been, you know, a thousand or more people. I've actually been to a promise keeper, keepers with Ty, and I don't know, was there 30, 40, 50,000 people there? And when, I'm telling you what, when when there's that many voices being worshipped and lifted up to the Lord, it's phenomenal. But two million? All in this thing? It had to have been a glorious thing, the songs of praise, the song of salvation. But guys, the other reason for why I pointed out is a little bit more doctrinal or theological. And I point out in verse 2, or why I point to verse 2 is because in Psalm 118, and this is where all the Bible is connected, guys. There's not one that's not part of the Bible that's separate from the other. It's all interwoven together, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And all of it is relevant for our lives today. But in Psalm 118, verse 14, we read this, this, that the same chorus that was sung by the women and by the children of Israel here on the seas of the Red Shore would later be sung again by the children of Israel, it says, when they returned from Babylonian captivity and rebuilt the temple under the leadership of Ezra. 
And when we look forward to, to prophecy and what God is still doing for the children of Israel, we see that they will once again sing this same song of salvation, the same chorus that's given to us in verse 2. And, and you can read through these chapters. I'm not going to point it out exactly to you, but there's these prophecies contained in Isaiah chapter 11 and chapter 12 that talks about this. And we read about, and we read, um, about this in this prophecy regarding, or well, we read in this prophecy, or in chapters 11 and 12, let me get it straight, the prophecies regarding a future restoration of the children of Israel into their land. And guys, the cool thing about it is we know that this fulfillment, in part, has taken place. Prophecy began to be fulfilled in, on May 14, 1948, and we know that was when the Jews were given back their land and declared to be a state of Israel. And ever since then, we know, like it says in the book of Isaiah, that God would do, that God's been gathering together his people from every corner of the world back to the promised land. And we know, Scripture tells us, that he will continue to do this, he will continue to do so until he returns to the earth, until he sets up his throne here on the earth to rule and reign over it. And the prophet, prophet Isaiah, one verse I want to point out to you, the prophet Isaiah declared in chapter 12, verse 2, that at this time, the nation would again sing this, for Yah, Y-A-H, the abbreviated name for Yahweh, the name of God, the Lord. He says, for Yah the Lord is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Same as what we read here. And the point is that Israel sang this song, guys, when they were delivered from Egypt, led by Moses, who is a prophet. And they sang it again when they were delivered from Babylon after the reconstruction of the temple as they were led by Ezra, a priest. And according to Scripture, they will sing it again. Having been delivered out, if you will, from the Gentile nations, back to the promised land, and at that time when they turn to Jesus as a people and accept Him as their King. So with that, let's pray and we'll jump into chapter 15. Lord, thank you, God, for this song of praise, this song of worship that tells of what you've done, who you are, how you did it, and the future promises, Lord, that have been laid up for the children of Israel. And God, our song's the same, that song of deliverance, that song of salvation, God. And may we reflect on your goodness and your kindness again this morning as we remember, Lord, what you've done for us, how you did it, and what you are doing, and what you've promised. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. In verse 1 it says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider has, 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 has thrown into the sea. He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name, Pharaoh's chariots and his armies he has cast into the sea. And he has chosen his captains also, or his, his chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them, and they sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy into pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. You consumed them like stubble, and with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths 
congealed in the heart of the sea, and the enemy said, I will, I like to add a ha ha ha. Perhaps that was not how, but I imagine Pharaoh, I got him now, but okay. So the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall be satisfied on them, and I will draw my sword, and my hand shall destroy them. Yet, verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallows them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed, and you guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. Then the men, the mighty men of Moab, trembling will take hold of them, and all the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountains of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have established, which your hands have established. Verse 19, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went in, went with his chariots and the horses, horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters upon upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then verse 20. When Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances, and Miriam answered them, saying, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Guys, we're going to stop there and um, finish the rest of the chapter next week, and and hopefully we can make it through. We have uh, our time of prayer the second Sunday of every month where some of the leaders will come up and Debbie will come back up and lead us in a couple other worship songs. So I want to make time for that. So we'll go through this and see where we get. But in these first five verses, we, we look and, and we see that the context of this is that the enemies of Israel will drown. Their freedom had been secured. And as a result of that, the, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, they burst into song and praised the Lord. And like I already mentioned, this song, you may have noticed it as we read through it, it has four divisions um, or four stanzas. And in, the, and in, the, in, the, in verses 1 through 5, I'll break them down for you. God's victories, which um, describe the what God has done, okay, um, is 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 announced. What God has done for them is announced in the first division of the first stanza of this song, verses one through five. Then in verses six through ten, we have the the how or the means by which God had saved them. This is described in verses six through ten and second stanza. And then in verses eleven through fifteen, God's character is is um how do I say it? God's character is praised. He's he's extolled. Um, and in doing so, the people tell of of what they had come to know about their God. That's what that's what we're doing when we're praising God. We're 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 re 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 reiterating or proclaiming what we've come to know about our God as a result of, of what he's done and how he's done it and we come to know who he is. And it's that experiential relationship, that experiential faith based relationship that we grow in as a result. And lastly in the in the last stanza of this song in verses fifteen through eighteen we have this mention of these other 
nations and what God was doing and what God would do. And we have the future promises of God. And then not just the future promises, but the declaration or the fulfillment of them that's declared. And it's, it's, it's like this, because God, you've done this, we know that you're going to do that. And, and that's part of our song of redemption as well, because of what God's done for us and, and what God is doing in us and doing through us, we know that he will still be faithful to do what he's already said he's going to do in regards to the future promises and the eternal hope that we too have received. So in considering this, this, this song of praise about the Lord, which, and this is interesting, is a song of praise about the Lord, which according to verse 1 was sung to the Lord, it's not a surprise that the Lord, that, that name, the Lord, is mentioned, is used ten specific times. You can go back and count. Um, but nine out of these ten times, the Hebrew word Yahweh is used. The other nine times is, is, is once, it's the, it's the word um, Adonai, but, um, which literally means master. But the majority of the time, nine out of ten times, the word Yah or Yahweh is used. And if you were here on a Wednesday night when we took a couple of weeks to study through the names of God that are in the Bible, you'll know that the word Yahweh is, is the only proper name of God, only proper name for God. And it was the name, the same name that was given to Moses back in the beginning of this account in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when, when Moses had asked what to tell the children of Israel when they asked him who it was that had sent him. And if you remember, this is when God said in verse 14, he said, I am who I am, right? I am who I am, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And I don't want to get into all the, the history behind that name, but I want to point out this, the singular or the single attribute, and the, the, the single attribute from which all other attributes of God that are, are, are built on in regards to the names of God, the single attribute that encompasses the name Yahweh, the I am, is, is this. It's immediacy of presence. And this is because the name Yahweh means the one who self-exists, the self-existing one. And that can blow our mind when you really begin to think about it and don't try too hard because it, 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 we might see some, some of that happening in people that Blank. But it's, he's a self-existing one. That's hard for us to conceptualize because we're a created being. We've had a beginning and an end. And being self-consisting or self-existing, the one, who, the one the, that means that, that God's the one who never came into being. Yeah. The one who, who always was, who always will be. The Alpha and the Omega, right? And the Hebrew name um, Yahweh is the same name as Jehovah. Jehovah is just our English equivalent. And throughout the scriptures, the word Yahweh or Jehovah is used nearly 6,800 times, this proper name of God. In addition to being the proper name of God, it is also the covenantal name of God, the, 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 the personal covenantal name of, of, of Israel's God. And it speaks in that sense to God's strength, to God's sovereignty, and to God's goodness. And it's repeated over and over and over throughout this passage. And each time it's used, that's what's being referred to. That's what should pop in our minds. And the fact that this proper name of God is used nine times in this song of praise, what it demonstrates to us is an aspect of worship, an undeniable aspect of worship. And it demonstrates that true worship, guys, first and foremost, requires a faithful witness to who God is and what God has done. 
And, and this is what the children of Israel did as they prefaced what God had done by saying at the very beginning of this, these things. The Lord, Yah, Yahweh, has triumphed gloriously. And then they go on to explain what God did. He did so by throwing the Egyptian army, both the horse and rider, into the sea. And then he caused them to sink to the bottom like a stone. Later on, it says like lead. And it's no coincidence, guys, it's important to point out here, it's no coincidence that Pharaoh, who had once ordered all of the Jewish babies, all the Jewish baby boys, to be drowned in the Nile River, it's no coincidence that he was paid back, if you will, in kind when God drowned all of his troops in the sea. And this statement, it may be a little bit shocking for us to consider. But the fact of the matter is it falls directly in line with the statement that is then made in verse 3, if you look there, where it says this. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a man of war. Well, I thought God was a, was, was a, a loving Father. And He is a gracious Savior. And He is. But He's a man of war. As a matter of fact, God says this in regards to these kinds of things. He says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And, and it seems that, that as if this attribute of God that we're talking about is so rarely spoken about or even talked about in the ranks of Christianity today. And I suspect that it is ignored in order to not upset people within the church today who don't want to face the fact that our God, who according to, to, to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, is a God of love, full of grace and full of mercy, but he's also, according to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, he's also the God of light. He's a God of love, and he is the God of light. And what does that mean? It means that he's, he's full of righteousness. And in turn, because he's righteous, he's full of justice. And in order to be a God of light who is full of righteousness and, and, and justice, our God is a God of war, who then in turn protects us from and fights against what? Injustice and unrighteousness. In other words, guys, if there really is an enemy like Satan, and let me tell you there is, I know there's this big teaching out there that Satan's not real, hell's not real, that's a lie. It's a lie. But if there really is an enemy like Satan, and if there really is sin, and if there is really evil... And if there's these things, God says they're hateful to me. And if they're hateful to God, then He must, as a good God, as a righteous God, as a just God, then wage war against them, right? And this truth is emphasized even more in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 13, where it says this. It says, the Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal with a shout. He will raise the battle cry, and he will triumph over his enemies. And the same attribute of the Father is revealed through our, his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the express image of the Father in heaven. And in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, it says this, and it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, there was a white horse, and he who sat on it 
mainly Jesus, was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And the point is, listen, in regards to worship, the point is is that it's to emphasize that God is love and eliminate the fact that, that God is light. It's ultimately robbing God of, of His attributes and denying the fact that, that He's a God of righteousness, a God of holiness, and a God of justice. And ultimately that because of this, He will protect and fight on our behalf. And so as we go on to the second part of this in verse 6, I'm not going to reread it, but you can look there. Because in, in, in verses 6 or 10 in the second section, we see that in addition to describing what God did to fight and protect for his people, we read on, and, and in 6 through, 10, 6 through 10, we're given the details of just how God did this. And the first thing that we should notice from these verses is that the Lord is a man of war who does not fight with conventional weapons. The Lord, who is a man of war, does not fight with conventional weapons. And in an attempt to explain the miraculous ways that God fought for the children of Israel, for them, we see that, that in, in one sense, to try to describe this, that there are human characteristics that are used to describe the attributes of God. For example, first of all, we're, we're told in verse 6 that God's power and glory is connected to his right hand. You know, God literally didn't come down with his right hand and go, you know, I'm going to take out Pharaoh. It's, 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 it's an illustration. It's a description to kind of help us understand. And, and it was by this right hand, the, it was the means by which it says the enemy was dashed into pieces. And then continue on with the same kind of thought. In verse 8, it says that it was the breath from the nostrils, that this was the wind that blew back the waters and congealed them so that they would stood still like a wall. And, you know, in my mind, I'm more of a black-and-white literalist. I'm like, well, did God really go? You know, that's not, that's not what we're being told there. It, it, it's not what he did. Um, but I got a point. And then, and then lastly, in verse 10, it says that the, when after the enemy stopped pursuit, it says that the Lord simply breathed. And, man, it, really, these things just speak about the simplicity in which God exercises his power. He just breathed. And the water returned and drowned the enemy. Guys, I point these out because in light of this, there's two things for us to consider. There are two things for us to consider in regards to how this relates to our own song of salvation, our own song of how God saved us, that tells the story of how God saved us. In that, it's fairly easy, if you think about it, for each one of us to recall and tell what God had done to save us. It's fairly easy... To, to recall and tell of what God had done to save us, but to explain and describe the miraculous, miraculous way of how God did this is a little different, a little difficult to articulate. And, and such should be the case in regards to every work of God, in, in regards to every work of the Holy Spirit. And trust me, we can, we can look at the bridge. This is my latest example of that. We can look at the bridge and the work that God's done over the last year, and we say, this is what God's done. And people go all the time, how, how did this happen? And, and, and those who've been involved with it look back and we go, we don't have a clue. I can't explain it. And, and it's the same kind of thought process, and, 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 and like I said, and such should be the case in regarding every work of God considering this. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 says, God says this. He says, you know what, my thoughts are not your thoughts. He says, nor are my ways like your ways, says the Lord. 
And he gives us a little example of what he's talking about. He says, for as high as, 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 for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I point these things out because there can be this temptation in our lives, even on a day-to-day basis, to try to explain away the supernatural works of God with natural explanations. You know, when someone comes and tells you a miraculous thing, hey, I laid hands on this person, I prayed for them, and they were healed. And you're like, maybe they were taking some medicine before you got there. You know, our, our first reaction is, is unbelief. Or then we try to explain it away with some kind of natural explanation. And, and, and I point this out because it's true in the spiritual world in every sense. In fact, there are many commentators who you can study. I can't. I have a hard time studying these guys out. But they take the whole Exodus account, starting with the first plague, right, the plague of, of water being turned into blood, and they go all the way through to the tenth plague of death and to the parting of the Red Sea, and they offer up a natural explanation. There was a land bridge or, or uh, I don't know, I mean, I don't want to go into all of them, but they offer some kind of a natural explanation for the supernatural works of God, and in doing so they try to explain really away the miraculous, the miraculous things that God did. Because they can't wrap their minds around the supernatural. And it's accepted by faith that that God's greater than we are. Now, most of them don't discount the fact that God did these things, but they dismiss the supernatural and say that God doesn't work outside of the laws of nature that you and I are confined to. But you know what? I'm here to tell you. My God, He's a supernatural God. And he's a supernatural God who did and still does today work in supernatural ways, in ways that we don't always understand. And the fact of the matter is, is just because we don't understand how the how behind what God did or behind what God does for us today, it doesn't make it untrue. It simply means this, that God who is infinite and works in, 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 who is infinite and, and who is all-powerful, works in supernatural ways that our finite understanding and our finite ways of doing things can't fully be understood. It means God, God's God and, and, and we're not. That's my simplistic answer to that. And in regards to my own life and the salvation that I've received, I can tell you what God did to save me. And I can tell you the, the why He did it. And that's hard even for me to wrap my mind. And he says, he did it because I, I love you, Sean. The why. But when it comes to the how God did it, the best I can do is to point you to Jesus. His death on the cross, the resurrection from the grave, and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. But after that, I can only say this. It is a miracle. It was a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that had caused my sins to be forgiven, that had given me a new heart of flesh, and that has caused me to be born again and become that new creation that God says that I am. How does He do that? It's a miracle. And even though I don't fully understand how God did this, I know these things to be true, and I'm grateful for what He's done. Now the other thing for us to consider, and I'm going to wrap it up with this, and we're running out of time. I don't know how this happens every week. The other thing for us to consider in the Lord in regards to the Lord being a man of war who does not fight with conventional weapons, guys, is this, is that as a new creation, which each one of us is and are as a result of what God's done for us, the growth of our faith in Him and His grace towards us, 
As a result of the fact that we're new creations and have become citizens of His kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, it says that our weapons of warfare are also unconventional. And then we need to remember this because we don't want to fight like we used to fight. We don't engage the old battles like we used to engage. And this is primarily due to the fact that we're no longer fighting against flesh and blood. And we're told this in 2 Corinthians, are we not? Chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, it says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You know what? And there's, this is further illustrated, is it not, in a very graphic way for Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 19. You know, and I, and I love this passage of Scripture because it talks about, you know, us being warriors for the Lord. And it talks about putting on the armor of God. And when you think about it, you're like, for a guy, you're like, yeah, I don't know, this is a fight. Give me a sword, give me a shield. You know, I'm going to go lop somebody's head off, right? I want to be like, never mind. Um, but you kind of get here, guys, and it's almost a little disappointing, and you realize, oh, there's no head lopping off going on. But listen to, to, to what this means. Our weapons of warfare are like our, our fathers in that they're unconventional, but we're still called to engage the battle. It says this, My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. I know there's a lot more coming, but that, if you don't start there, you're doomed. Right? Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. It's almost like what Paul reminded Paul says the Galatians, oh foolish Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, do you now believe you could be perfected in the flesh? You know, it's like God's done a work in us, He strengthened us, and it's not like, okay, God, I got it. I'm going to go do it. Be right back. Wait there. No, be strong in the Lord and the power is might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the attacks of the devil. Why? Because we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, and the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That should scare you to death. If you don't go forward and be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. I've had, I don't want to get into it, I wish I had another hour. I'm not much of a mystic in my relationship with the Lord, but I believe in spiritual realm and these kinds of things, and I've had encounters with demonic stuff. It cannot be denied. And it can be a bit intimidating. To take up the full armor, the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand, stand. Therefore, having girded your waist with the truth—that's a weapon. The truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, righteousness, and having shod your feet with the perspiration of the gospel of peace. But he says, above all, take the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying, he says, always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful till the end with all perseverance and supplication for the Spirit. Our weapons of warfare are unconventional. Deb, if you want to come on up, Debbie, I just want to summarize the last two 
sections of this song. I want you to have it. You can look through it. But in verses 11 through 16, this is where God's character is praised. And the idea here is that in these verses we see the children of Israel, that they were able to praise God's character because through the process of what, what God had, had, had done and seeing how God had done it, God had proven Himself. He's proven Himself and He's made Himself known. And doing the children of Israel rightly concludes in verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord? Who is like our God, guys? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praise, doing wonders? And those wonders and those things that God's done didn't stop on the day that He saved us. It continues on through eternity. And in verses 17 through 21, as the children of Israel look forward to crossing over and inheriting the promised land that, that was set up before them and the enemies that stood before them, ultimately that song of praise, guys, is looking forward with hopeful expectation to God's promises being fulfilled. This is our song of salvation. This is our song of praise. With that, I'm just going to go right into it. The guys are going to come forward and take two seats up front. We're going to worship the Lord. Um, guys, please, I've seen some of you get up and leave, and if you've got to leave, that's fine. I understand. But, but as people are coming forward, and we're worshiping the Lord together, if you're not coming forward, we need to be as a congregation praying for those who are coming forward. Take the time to bow our heads, to worship the Lord, and to pray together as a congregation, even if you're not the one coming forward. Lord, thank you, God, for this time. As we come to you in prayer, may our heart be filled with your, the knowledge of who you are and, and the knowledge of your goodness and love for us, and that we know that, that we can come to you in prayer and fight the battles that you call us to fight and to stand how you call us to stand and make our requests known. Lord, we do this now together as one body. Because of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.